Were you here last Sabbath, some of you? Can I just see your hand? This will only make sense if you were here last Sabbath. I just want to thank you because you heard my cry. I, will, uh, I, I was lamenting that I was going to have to look at uh, John Deere or WrestleMania or some kind of 2009 calendar I wasn't going to enjoy. And you heard my cry, church. I have a calendar for every month of the year. I will start with the Greek Isles. I will move to the Hubble telescope images. I will move to mountain pictures and California coastal pictures and Maxine, that grumpy older woman, for a month. I will move to baby kittens and puppies laying together and even, God forbid, these ugly chihuahuas. <laughs> Honorable mention goes to... Nathan Blue, who sent me an image partway through the week from his cell phone, he was in the bookstore trying to buy me a calendar, sent me a text message and said, I'm sorry, Chris, you're out of luck. <laughs> Those are all clipper calendars on the left. Honorable mention go to Lynn and Ed Haddad, who Saturday night, just after the sun went down last Sabbath, phoned me from Barnes & Noble and said, what kind of calendar would you like? <laughs> and we got the Hubble images. And honorable mention to the Thompsons who come to first service, before I even left church last Sabbath, I had a calendar in my hand. <laughs> That's the Thompsons. So I'm starting with the Greek Isles that they gave me. Your generosity does not surprise me. It was reminding me of a sermon from 2005. I had said something in that sermon. You might, you might not have heard it, so I'll just repeat it. I really, really, really want to BMW Z4. <laughs> Just in case you missed it that year. <laughs> Purpose something in your heart. That was the message from Daniel and his friends in Babylonian captivity last Sabbath. Purpose something, a, a conviction. Choose carefully purpose something in your heart the steps that bring you take you closer to God and it is a good introduction to the sermon conversation that begins today our sermon series first series for 2009 when we're talking about where we'll be talking about purposing something in your heart making purposeful intentional choices convictions about what we believe and why we believe what we believe. Every day you are already making choices about faith. And so am I. We make choices based upon incoming data, choices based upon our experiences or the experiences of other people. We make choices on an instinct we have, a gut instinct or impression, something we think comes from the Holy Spirit, maybe. We make choices based upon all sorts of pieces of information, and sometimes we ignore that incoming data, and, and that's a choice also. We are all, every day, making choices about our faith, personal, purposeful, intentional choices. Every day we are choosing faith. That's what we'll talk about for a few weeks. 
It seems to me when people are feeling a little uncertain about the future, a little out of control about how history will complete itself, that that is a good time to think about your life of faith, to choose again the convictions that you'll hold dear, convictions hopefully that will bring us closer and closer to God and that will make a difference outside of these walls. Our World Church, headquartered on the East Coast, has decided to make 2009 the year of evangelism for Adventist Christianity. Tomorrow, meetings begin in South Carolina, where lay people and leaders alike will gather and think and talk carefully about how to do this better, how, how to help people outside of the church who have yet to make a choice about faith. Our goal here at Calamesa is really twofold. And one is, is personal, that we would personally become more convicted and that our conviction will take us closer to God and that through that conviction, others who haven't yet made a decision about God might be helped. It's a twofold goal, choosing faith. When I say faith, by the way, I mean belief and action. I mean enough belief Enough, we never have it all, we never have all the facts and all of the data, we can never be 100% certain, but enough information, enough belief that it also impacts our actions, the way we choose to live, the life we lay down, like Don and Doris. You don't see people who dedicate their lives to God unless they have something to base it on. Belief and action go together. That's how I'm understanding the word faith during this, these seven weeks. Now, Scripture records dozens and hundreds of stories of people who choose faith, who choose it well, and others who choose poorly. We could go to a variety of places this morning. Acts 17 is where we'll be, and there is a Bible in the pew rack there if you'd like to join along. I believe that the story recorded in Acts 17 is fairly similar to our world today. We might not think so at the first reading. I think it resembles our world more, more than we would think, in fact. In Athens, there is a city full of ideas. A city swirling and churning around the next new idea, around dialogue and debate and logic and reason. Athens is known for that. The Apostle Paul stops in Athens, not because it's on some major economical route, not because it has social significance. He ends up in Athens because, well, he got in trouble in the last city and he needed a place to go. So Athens was always a layover. It was never a destination for Paul. The Athens Paul finds is not the Athens of Plato and Socrates and all the others, the glory years of Athens, because Athens has since been destroyed by a war. Rome brought on, but still Athens is thought of as the seat of philosophy for the whole universe. Still, Athens has the best thinkers and debaters and teachers and re those who reason. Ideas are welcome here, and the more ideas, the better, and the better ideas, well, the better ideas hopefully lead to better living. That's what Athens values. Superior thinking, superior living, they hope. Acts chapter 17, here's Paul, beginning with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, 
What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. After hearing just that much, the thinkers there in Athens decided Paul needed a more proper place to have his conversation. So they escort him to the Aragopagus, also called Mars Hill. And Paul begins a formal conversation, which I, with what I believe is an ingenious opening line, verse 22. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He's in a city full of idols, by the way. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And with just that much, Paul teases them because a new idea, that is just what they are up for in Athens. And Paul moves in now to an explanation that's fairly compact and dense. And because we don't specialize in these schools of philosophy, Epicurean thought, Stoic thought, it can sometimes be lost on us. But Paul takes their very reasoning, ideas, language, and he begins to pull them closer to the Christian gospel when he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not need to live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all people life and breath and everything else. From one person to another he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places they should live. God did this so people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far off from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of all this to all men by raising him from the dead. And in that speech, Jesus is never mentioned by name. The cross, the cross of Christ, never specified. Those are the two most defining realities for Paul, Jesus and him crucified. Yet Paul leaves them out of this speech in Athens. Instead, he describes a broad God, a God who reaches all across the universe and connects all people together, one God everywhere, who reaches for humans and who desires that humans would reach back for him, a personal God, which is scandalous to the people in Athens. It is easy to criticize Athens and the way of intellectuals, even today. It's quite popular, even inside of Adventist Christianity today. Some of the critiques we launch at intellectuals are, are that they're so busy. I love this line by Anne Lamont, thinking thinky thoughts. I've told you that line before. Intellectuals are so busy thinking thinky thoughts that they abandon the Bible, they abandon solid biblical teaching, they confuse the gospel, they water it down, they distort those thinkers. 
I'd like to say a word, just a brief word, in defense of Athens and intellectual activity and reason and logic. In Athens, ideas were welcome. In Athens, people found hospitality when they walked in, no matter where they came from. In Athens, people thought less in categories of right and wrong, and they thought more along the lines of an exploration. It's a kind of curiosity to think together. It's a kind of journey that they go on exploring. In Athens, there is a kind of patience and tolerance with people, with diverse experiences and opinions and ideas. Something we can learn from. In Athens, this intellectual activity is almost a little bit like play. I came to church a few weeks ago, I believe a couple months ago, just before the holiday season, and on my desk in the office there was a piece of paper. Actually, that's a generous statement. It was a tithe envelope. This is the second best use for a tithe envelope. Someone had torn the tithe envelope off, and here's message number one. Dear Pastor Chris, hope you're having a good Sabbath. Look in your Hillary Clinton Living History book, page 47, for your next clue. Kind of interesting, out of all the books on the bookshelf, that's the one they chose. So I went to that book, page 47, and I got found another note. Glad to see you found this. For your next clue, head toward the music room and look under the porcelain drinking fountain for your next clue. So I wandered down the hall to the porcelain drinking fountain in this back hallway here, and the next note says, nice find. It will get harder. The next clue is in a metal box in the restroom to your left, and so I stepped into the restroom to my left and looked at the metal box, and here was another piece of paper. I opened it, and it says, look into the mirror to your left. Now that you've done that, your next clue can be found upstairs near the landing to your right. And so I moved upstairs, began to go up the back steps, where there are two landings. Is it the first landing or is it the second landing? So I went to the first landing and I looked to the right and I went to the second landing and I looked to the right and I confess to you, I am lost in my own treasure hunt right now. Whoever wrote these, if you are here, I'm guessing it's a 12, 14-year-old. You got me. I need some help. I don't know what's up the stairs, what, what is hidden in the rest of these papers. But it was an awful lot of fun getting to the landing and the staircase. And now I am stuck. There is a sense of adventure and play and exploration and intellectual activity that I believe is God-given, that I believe comes from creation. And within all of that, there is a generous uh, acknowledgement that all human experience is valid, that people are different from me and they're different from you and they grew up in other parts of the world and whatever anyone has to bring to the table is worth listening to. There's a generosity there. Everyone is worth listening to and there are a variety of ways people can arrive at the same truth in this kind of journey. In this kind of journey, choosing faith, it is the exploration, the journey together that is as significant as where we finally land and arrive on a platform of truth. I believe that with my whole heart. Now, I understand the flip side of the conversation. Not everything everyone proclaims, not every new idea, not every philosophy, not every religious belief 
can be correct. They can't all be correct. And this is why in other places, at other times, the Apostle Paul warned people. 1 Corinthians 15, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything and hold on to that which is good. Avoid every kind of evil. Paul says, test it all because only some of it is good. God asks us to choose our faith wisely, to examine the evidence, and to conclude with care. Not everything everywhere can probably be correct. Was Paul successful in Athens, do you think? Some say that when Paul is in Athens, he's doing what Paul does best. See, Athens, they're not worried about the end of the ages, so Paul doesn't talk about the thief coming in the night and the end of time. They're not concerned about how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, so you don't see any counsel towards that. They're not concerned about how Christians now get along in this new Christ community and, and, and what to do with governors and rulers who won't let you acknowledge Christ. They're not concerned about that, so Paul doesn't address it. Rather, Paul steps up to an audience with an intellectual aptitude like Princeton and Yale and Harvard all together, and he uses their ideas and their language and their poets and attempts to move them towards the Christian gospel. Is Paul successful? Athens is the only place Paul speaks where he doesn't provoke persecution. And the Bible says when Paul is finished speaking that some people laughed some people said, not today, and a few believed. A few. Is that success? For even those few matter ultimately to God. Maybe there is a better question to ask this morning, a better lesson for us than to ask if Paul was successful. Maybe when Paul testifies, it would be good for us to acknowledge when, when he says what he knows to be true, in this case, at least in Athens, he never says why what he knows makes a difference in his life. He never says why all of these convictions matter to the way he lives. He never says the fact that he knows this God and this Jesus, it does something to his future. He never confesses to these people that that which he's concluded in his mind has totally changed his living. He never says why Jesus and the cross are so significant. So maybe it is true that purely intellectual conversation never really converts anyone. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's true because people also, besides the purely intellectual side of the conversation, need to have an experience somewhere along the way with God. And maybe that's what's happening in Athens. A reasoned life of faith and knowledge always includes an experience with God. So for these weeks, that's what we'll look at, the various ways people experience God. Some people experience God when they open up their Bible and study intensely. We'll look at that. Some people experience God because of the faith they've inherited that came from their parents and their grandparents. Some people experience God when they look in the world and they see God's active involvement. For others, they look and God is invisible, but they have a sense God is moving all of the variety of ways people experience God, whatever they are, they must always include an experience, not only a knowledge. 
You know, when the Athens conversation is finished, just like for you and I today, I'm not sure that it matters. We know precisely what we believe on every topic. In fact, I'm not sure every topic that comes to you this week is worthy of your time. There are some things you'll be asked to consider this week that you can just say, I don't need to think about that. I am not sure that it's the best use of our time when we think about choosing our faith to spend our time defending the Bible and defending a creator God and defending the flood and, and defending the miracles of the Bible. I'm not sure it's the best use of our time to help other people know why they're wrong and we're right in what we believe. I'm not sure it's the best use of our time persuading other people that what they believe is meaningful is really not grounded at all. But I am sure of one thing after reading Athens, at least this one thing I know, whatever we say, whatever we conclude, it must include Jesus. Jesus must be in there. Jesus, when we wake up and we lie down day after day after day, when we're choosing faith, Jesus must not only be in there, but must be the core and the content and the center of a Christian's faith experience. It has to include Jesus. I hear some people today concerned, maybe worried, that there are ideas and beliefs and doctrines and truths out there that, that we don't know about yet or something uh, to be determined still that might have an eternal consequence. Ideas to be sifted through. We just want to be certain we know what we need to know so when that great and terrible day comes, we know what we need to know. And I know that some of us worry about this. On Thursday... When the U.S. Airway Flight 1549 went down in the Hudson River, you must have all read reports and seen pictures now. When there was first a crash landing, and then once they survived the crash landing, the plane begins to go underwater. Some of the reports in the newspapers say various things begin to happen among these passengers, all of whom survived. Some began to cry out. Some screamed out. Some put their hand, head and buried it in their knees and... and uh, one sweet young couple kissed goodbye, and, and some people prayed. Some people prayed the same phrase over and over and over, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Some people prayed the Lord's Prayer, but it happened so quick they are not able to get all the way to the end of the prayer. And during all of this chaos, the newspaper reports one man who just calmly put his hand forward and pulled the emergency card out of the seat in front of him. And began to read. While everyone is praying and screaming and worried about how they're getting out. So that when it is time for people to move forward to one of the exits, the exit that's above water, and, and people on the plane begin to wrestle with the door, the gentleman who's read the emergency card shouts out to them, throw the door out. It opens out to the outside. And someone's able to turn the knob and thrust out, and the door is open, and people begin to move out on the wings of the airplane. During what can only be thought of as a tremendous time of trouble for those passengers, there is one very calm, secure guy who just read some instructions. 
if for no one else today other than those few who might be worried that we might not know what we need to know to be ready for the end times, if for none other than you this morning, please be comforted and convinced by the testimony of the Bible that God so loved and loved and loved, gave and gave and gave, that you live forever and ever and ever. That is the testimony of the Bible. God has secured your future. So there isn't a need to sit and worry and wonder if we know what we need to know so we'll survive what we need to survive. Either God has secured our future or it's God plus us who secure our future, friends. It can't be both ways. Either we're saved by the grace of Jesus on the cross or we're not. So be secure this morning. If you believe on that God... You know what you need to know to survive that terrible time. And if that is true, and you have to decide if that is true, then we, could, we can be calm like the man who reads the emergency instructions. And we can explore together all the incoming data. And we can choose our faith carefully together for right and healthy and good reasons choosing our faith. For me, the one criteria, by the way, just personal testimony to you, my one criteria day after day after day is the birth and the life and the teachings and the actions and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Every piece of information that is incoming, I ask the question, what does this say? about Jesus and God? How does this align with the life and teachings and the ways of the Jesus who reveals the God? I know that's my one mainstay criteria. Jesus has to be in the mix. There is a Baptist preacher from the mid-19th century, late 19th century, fairly famous in England, uh, Alexander McLaren. The story goes that a long career, by the way, 45-year career minister, but there was one skeptic in the little town there by his church, and he, he, he made a deal with the skeptic. If you come to church four Sundays in a row, I will explain Christianity to you in such a way that when we are done, you'll be a believer. And the skeptic agreed, and for four weeks in a row, the skeptic came to church and listened to those sermons. And, and when the four weeks were over, the skeptic had come to a conclusion that he did believe, and he did want to be a Christian the minister was so excited when he heard the story, he approached the man and said, I just, I'm just curious over the four weeks, which of the sermons, what was it that I said in there that was the most persuasive to you? And the gentleman said, well, well, well Reverend, your sermons were significant. But there was one Sunday out on the sidewalk when an elderly woman was slipping and she was falling and I helped her up and she looked and turned her kind face towards mine, and she only replied to me, I wonder if you know my Savior, Jesus. He means the entire world to me. I wish you could know him too. Choosing faith, whatever the evidence, friends, May it be grounded and centered in the Jesus who represents the invisible God. Amen.